when you confront death at age 22, everything changes. It got me thinking about what I wanted to do before I actually die, because life is unpredictable. Can you relate? I'm Kiki Kelly, and this is my story. My friend Amy Hallberg thought I should share some of my stories with you. She'll be joining me here. Some are hard, some are funny, and some are just unbelievable. But they're all true. So here we are. Season 1, Episode 5. Tales from an Inadvertent Bucket List Champ. We're recording this from the blanket fort downstairs in Kiki's house. My daughter built it for us because she knows exactly what it's like having just started high school to know feeling like she wanted to go back to not just even middle school or elementary school, but preschool. And that's how Amy and I are feeling right now (laughs) on this topic. We've been trying to record this one for three weeks now. Yeah. And it's just not. And this morning we're like, okay, it has to happen. And... We've been recording these, and it's been working like clockwork, and we we have a symbiosis, and it just felt edgy and uncomfortable, and today we had to acknowledge that. I Okay, so someone very wise told me that wherever there is the edginess, there's also an opportunity. When you feel that anxiety slash fear slash excitement, and when there's power there, there's there's also gold. And so Amy and I decided to dig a little bit beneath the surface and try to figure out where this energy was coming from and why a, a topic like three years in Teach for America service would be so difficult to to discuss. And, you know, from my perspective, I kind of thought that it was about me because I've walked away from teaching because I really tried my hardest. And As much as people will tell me that I did good things there, I remember the things I did that weren't so great, that I'm not so proud of. And sometimes those are moments that I learned the most from, that made me a better teacher, that challenged me the most, that made more of me. But still, I'm not always so excited to tell you that my last few years of teaching were the hardest ones in my life, which the three years that you're describing are hard years of teaching. But it was also the idea that a lot of my challenge was around socioeconomic status. It was around the fact that I understood that our system wasn't serving all the kids the same way and that I wasn't always able to help those kids. Okay, and here's where I came in and surprised Amy because it wasn't just me doing national service to pay off my school loans. Um, It was a lot bigger than that for me. I was facing my own childhood living in a housing project with a quote-unquote welfare mom who, by the way, never was. Um, I'll, exp- I'll go into that later. But, but you know, that's the stereotype. and Bilking the system. Right, right. And, and I was always incredibly aware that I did not get to the wonderful college where Amy and I both attended be, simply by pulling up my own bootstraps. I had gotten there because many, many people had helped me, including the government. And so it was, that's why it was so important for me to recover from a life-threatening illness to go and and confront my own past. I ended up learning probably way more than those kids did 
At the same time, I also was aware that it wasn't like me versus a really highly trained teacher like you. It was me versus a permanent substitute who just, you know, showed up. And so... (laughs) I always thought that, yeah, but you made it to Carleton. And a friend of mine at Carleton pointed this out. So Carleton always talked about being egalitarian, which means if you're accepted, then your demonstrated need will be met which means in theory that everybody is the same there. And I had a friend who came from, like you, northern Minnesota, who said, they can say that, you don't know who we are, but we all know who you are, and we know who we are. We who do not have money, we understand. Well, yeah, it starts with the names of on the the endowed funds. It starts with names on buildings. It starts with, I mean, you know, you know, based on what people like, who has to do a, a work study job, um, and then even who has to do a work study job during official breaks like summer and winter break. Yeah, yeah, and it wasn't like my family. You know, my family had just enough money for us not to qualify for financial aid, and my mother dedicated her entire teaching salary. So I didn't have loans, but I am very aware that my mother dedicated four years to getting me through college. And part of the reason she did that, I have learned from Amy, is because your mother had experienced she grew poverty. up really poor, and so I understand poverty at a second generational level. I understand what that did to my mother. But I never thought about, even as though I, I know on an intellectual level, yeah, it's harder for people without, without the resources. We started talking about what free food meant to us. Because me as a college student, I loved free food. And there's free food like, yay, free food, I don't have to come up with the money. And then there's what you told me about free food. Yeah, so my daughter is you. She she has never grown up with without anything, and and she hears the stories. But it it isn't until the the these small little stories are what give you an, an idea. Okay, so for example, I I was very excited to to land the monitoring job for a small the small gym at our college because the college teams would come back. And they had food. They had food. You know, I couldn't scrape up the $5 to buy a Domino's pizza. I mean, that was like slumming it for so many people. I didn't have the beer money to pitch in. I, it was hard enough to have clothes and books, honestly. And You said sometimes you didn't have books. No, Probably. I had to borrow from the library or from other students. And it was constantly... Okay, so here's another thing. At the time I was going to college, we had three people in my family going to college. My mother was going to medical school, um, which, you know, by the way, so she's hardly the welfare mom. She was, you know, working her way through community college and then, you know, through her all of her education. And at the age of 42, goes to medical school, the best one, one of the best in the nation. And um, my sister was also getting ready to go to college. And at one point, we all three of us were, were there. So... No, if there, no, and you know, I I understood that part. Yeah. I understood because my grandparents were very proud people. They didn't want a handout. They didn't want you to know they were poor. They quit a church that they were part of one time because the church started fundraising to build on, and suddenly my mom was at that church years later and saw the little hey fundraising thing and was like, oh, that's the year we quit going to church. We went right. to a different church where we could be more anonymous and people wouldn't notice that we didn't have the money to chip in. There's no bilking the system. It's pride. Right. And, you know, pride has this negative connotation, but, and of course, you know, everyone likes to be, to think that they're, you know, oh, I'm not acting out of my ego, but, but if you grew up and the Salvation Army people came and gave you a Christmas gift, 
if you were the one who was, you know, the charity case, mm-hmm. um, you know, free lunch tickets. Mm-hmm. I, you know, there every day there was some way of being found out. Here's, but here's the story that my college friends wouldn't know. So my very, you know, my first love, like just madly in love with this guy. And um, we have to be apart for a whole summer. And so we're writing to each other every single day. And he, he comes from, a, I didn't, I didn't realize how wealthy his family was. I, you know, I figured he was middle class. Of means. Right. Well, his mother did not find it appropriate that I was writing on just regular notebook paper. Yeah. I wow. mean, those kind of things. And then when I saw a picture of his grandmother and, and I was like, oh, is that in a museum? And he was like, no, that's our house. And I shut down. I, my defenses went up and I felt inferior. And yet that same person was also someone who, you know, called me out on being xenophobic. And I was. Even with my background, I could be totally xenophobic because it was so, there's so much energy there that just it just makes you want to crawl into a hole. And this is something that you and I do share. Our quest to create connection between people, create bridges, is that we understand prejudice or ignorance because we have experienced it. When I got to that college, I was called out by people who made me feel like a really bad person based on beliefs I had about different groups of people when I had no exposure to anything else. And I felt shamed and I felt mortified and like, oh my gosh, am I just a horrible person entirely? And there were other people who were kind enough to look at me and go, Amy, you got some things that I'd like to share with you. Can I share with you what it is like to be a Jewish person? Can I share with you what it might be like to be homosexual? I mean, like that simple. Can I share with you what it would be like? The friend who said about the, about the socioeconomic, like, do you understand that for me, it's not just getting in here. It's how am I going to make it all the way through? There's things that I didn't know. And people were kind enough to see me as a kind human being who just didn't understand and help me to do better. And yet, even then, you know, the, we, it's difficult because I also understood the privileged kids um, who had the best intentions in the world, mm-hmm. who meant very well, who really didn't know what they didn't know. Right. And, you know, if I had had uh, the strength um, at the time to have owned and said, hey, I'm that, I'm that kid who can't scrape up enough money to buy ramen noodles. I could have taught a lot of people, but, you know. You had your own learning to do at the time. I know, exactly. And so this is, it's, it's, that's the thing. If you're already, I don't want to say the word oppressed, but just if you've already got challenges of your own, sometimes you're so tired that it's hard to take the time out to teach someone else. I think that's what we're doing here is we are at a place where we are able to. It's scary. I don't like the idea of putting my voice out here and saying, I just, I, I mean, it's edgy, but I can do it. You know, it's, it's, it's the when I went and taught high school and as a high school teacher, I was able to say, hey, I was bullied in high school and I couldn't have talked about that in high school. I was mortified of it. I was absolutely mortified that I was bullied in high school. But as a high school teacher, I was able to say, I know what it is to be bullied. 
right? It's that, okay, you couldn't have done any differently then. I couldn't have done any differently then. I did the very best I could to learn, and I'm still learning. I mean, like today, I'm like, dang it, here I am with my good friend Kiki, and we're, we're you know, we spend all this time together. We're really good friends, and yet it's still edgy, and I still don't want to bring it up because I don't want to hurt you or offend you. And the, the funny part was <laughs> I wasn't the one who was hurt or offended because I've been living with this information for years and years, and I've done a lot of processing over the years. And I also went to the opposite extreme of, of um, you know, having gained a lot of wealth. And so... Right. So when you and I started, when you first... So the way that you and I met was we just met, and I was like, hey, sounds like you have a story to tell. And you hired me, and that was huge because I had quit my job and I was worried about money. And so it's been this interesting, are you hiring me out of pity? Because I don't want pity. No, you, you, you are an author, and I want to. I want one of my major bucket list items that keeps getting pushed off to the next bucket list is to write a book. And people have been telling me my entire life, you have a talent at writing, you should write these, you've got great stories. And yet... It has taken sitting down with you, who ha- who is just much more organized mentally, because so much of this is coming out of my gut. So much of this is numinous and powerful, and you know, every everyone thinks that way about their own issues until you realize that you know. Pfft, Plenty of people have the same things going on. You're not special in the way, you're, or no one's really noticing you, or no one will really care if you, um, if you came from a housing project. Mm. I mean, because that's the not fact even that you're able to say that now with so little energy or shame is is that's a lot of years of work on your part. Absolutely, um, and, and for me today, what was hard was. It's really easy to talk about your life, but here I am, and I'm like, okay, now I have to own my own stuff, too. And that's kind of the conversation we're having as a nation writ large. I mean, this is just two Minnesota girls who are white mm-hmm. and had the same education. And, and are straight? Yeah. And, and imagine, I mean, just there's so many layers of complexity. Mm-hmm. You know, and if it's edgy and difficult for us to talk about, and we're we're both very open people. Yeah, we're, go- we're good friends. Yeah, exactly. With a lot in common. Exactly. And mm-hmm. so if we can start the conversation with us, and if we just own it and say up front, you know what, this this was hard. This was hard to do. And and the funny thing is, once you hear the podcast, it probably won't sound hard. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, no, right? Here we are. Right. Here we are. Totally like we're sitting with bunnies and, and like soft blankets in a fort that, that a rainbow bunny. Yes, because <laughs> because it makes you feel um small. Small. Exactly. Mm. And a little bit like a child. And you want and the important thing though is okay. You've taught me this because the first time we tried to broach the subject, it was we thought, oh yeah, this is going to be easy to talk for about Teach for America. I was a very successful teacher, and I did three years of national service. I'm very proud of it. Um, why is this so difficult to talk about? And you kept saying, well, you know, just just go just go think about it for a while. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you're you're right. I just haven't really processed it and thought about it. <laughs> and it just kept being pushed off, and 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 it wasn't until today that we realized why, right? Because it broaches 
everything from race, class, region. I mean, I was a Teach for America teacher in rural North Carolina with students who had a lot of them been kicked out of urban schools. And this particular school was located very close to I-95, which is a huge corridor going between Miami and New York City. And it happened to, I mean, so there was drug running. And and yet it's it's so complex. There's so many different things happening. And you talked about Teach for America being very well intended, but there is a gap between who's running Teach for America and who's the recipient of Teach for America. Well, that's it's why it was so controversial because you you know you have a Princeton graduate and really wanting to do you know national service and do this amazing thing and she gets some funding from President Clinton and and it's just a great idea and yet you know, there was a huge controversy about it because here these are, a lot of them are very elite, privileged, very highly educated, you know, what what people today call the liberal elite, all right? Or white saviors. Yeah, exactly. And so that in and of itself was difficult. The I even had difficulty with that because I found myself gravitating more toward not even just the locals, but maybe people who really were experiencing kind of severe poverty rather than my own, you know, cohorts. Exactly. Because it brought up so much stuff from my childhood where I was just, I didn't even realize how much kind of anger and resentment I had. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't especially nice to them. And I, you know, I don't, I don't keep in touch with my Teach for America colleagues, except for the ones who were the local teachers there and they weren't affiliated with Teach for America because that was the first time I had really experienced and I I somehow didn't really realize it as clearly at Carleton but by the time I got to Teach for America it was very obvious to me I had way more in common with my students than I did with the other teachers who were coming to do the same job as me. Okay so the original plan was to break up the three years of Teach for America into three separate podcasts. but And it was really difficult to even try to to focus on the right questions on, on the first year of Teach for America because, honestly, it's about survival. It, it is just, it is, it is a culture shock to go into any school system that's not your own as an, un, a relatively untrained teacher. So that in and of itself, it's, it's survival. And you've got these kids who have PTSD who don't, who who see teachers that the constant turnover they get full time subs or you know that the, they feel left behind they so they already are coming at you from a perspective of you know prove to me that you're not going to leave me so there's that and a lot of a lot of the teacher america teachers did leave after the first semester well here's what i had going for me and this is why it was important to talk about the financial aspect the economic aspect one i had nowhere else to go i I had spent the little money I had on a 13-year-old station wagon and had, you know, the gas money was hard to come by. I didn't have money for hotels. I mean, finding a place to rent. I mean, I was only being paid $17,000 a year, and that was before taking money out for teacher supplies. I was living in a hunting shack with three other teachers because there's no real proper, you know, apartment buildings or anything in that area of the country. Right. So literally no place for me to go. There, I I am there. And it didn't take long for the students to figure out that I was there. They maybe didn't know the reason why, because I can pass as, you know, I'm a well-educated white woman from the North, and for whatever reason. So you can fly below the radar. 
Yeah. And that, that's, you know, a benefit in many ways. And in some ways it's, it, it takes longer to learn, to learn things because you don't have the obvious skin color that's going to just smack you in the face with this is wrong. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. more subtle than that. I wasn't going anywhere my first year. And so I was just going to have to figure out how to discipline these students, how to teach them um, so that they would pass the, the tests. If I hadn't had a very creative, resourceful mother who managed to raise three children um, while our father was off fighting in a war and then later in a band touring, if I hadn't seen her and how she managed to go to school and work and raise her kids and we all ended up graduating from college, I mean, it's extraordinary. Yeah, it is. And uh, I'm so grateful, uh, you know, but I also understood the kids who did not have the parents who, who showed them. The, I lived with them. I was friends with them. I'm the only one that made it out of the housing project. Everyone else succumbed to pregnancy, drugs, death, prison. So when my student that is going to be the through line for these three years of Teach for America told me point blank, this is the kid that's up in my face and I know that he's got leadership skills and he's super smart but he gets terrible grades and he, he, he's just there to make my life miserable. And he says, why should I listen to anything you say? I'm just going to end up dead or in prison by 22 anyway. Mm-hmm. And he had a point. So, mm-hmm. But it gave me the challenge of I'm going to show you that you have something to live for. Because I, you had almost died at 22. And I had made it through difficult upbringing circumstances long as that well. Yes, long before I, that happened. So f- at first we're, we're, we're arch enemies, but at the same time, it's, it's like seeing your childhood self in the form of a, a boy of a different color, but yet seeing yourself mm-hmm. and that fierce pride, that fierceness that he had, that, that mm, you know, why should I trust you? And you know what? The answer was, you, there's no reason to. Mm-hmm. I have to earn your trust. And that's why he and I still have a relationship today. I'm so proud of him. It's the biggest success story in my entire life besides having a child. After being told that I've never have any children, he's, he's the success. And I, I, I know he'll listen to this, and I know he'll know who, he, who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But for right now, let's just say making it through that first year is basically the big challenge of um, national service. Tell me a little bit more about this student. Oh, wow. Clearly just incredibly bright. And um, how did you know this? You know who's, you just know, especially when they, they can attack you as a teacher and they've got a good, they've got good points, right? Mm. So he was you, very you, precise. Oh yeah. He was powerful and he was a leader, natural leader. And I knew that it was like the class was looking at both of us. Like, who are we going to follow? Are we going to follow the teacher? Or are we going to follow this kid who's got street smarts and who's been around the block and who knows this area? And are we going to believe what she says or what he says? Hmm. And I knew I had to win him over. And so that, that's what kept me going that first year. And what are some of the ways that you interacted with him? I mean, like, so how do you do that? So um, he, he was one of the kids that had been placed into the lovely category of 0 to 21st percentile. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. So when I got, when I got to my classroom and, and I understand it, I mean, if you're at the bottom of the, and teacher, you know, you know what teacher hierarchies and I'm at oh, the yeah. very bottom of the pecking. 
in a place where or, there's order. not a lot to go around anyway. Right. You're already, yeah, everyone's got cockroaches, but, and everyone's got crappy books and desks, but they gave me the crappiest books and desks in the lab, you know, I had the most students and I had literally the handpicked list of, you know, five or six students from each of the other teachers that they did not want because wow. they expected them to be suspended or they just, you know, they were labeled with zero to 21st percentile. Did well, you say you had like 50 of them to start out with? Cause yeah. And, and I talked to the principal stupidly and he was just like, listen, they're going to be out of here. They're going to be in jail or suspended or dead in the next three weeks. You just have to hold them into in one classroom. Wow. That was the reality of it. Yes. That was literal quote. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And to back it up, I'll give you an image. So it's in the first three weeks, right? And I'm, I've got these three big windows, right, in my classroom. And I, I look up and I see two boys running and the principal, the principal with a two by four <laughs> running after these boys. And I'm just like, okay, what the hell? I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know. I don't want to know. I mean, it was just, it was a madhouse. It was a madhouse always at the beginning of the school year because by law or through probate court or whatever, these kids were forced to go to school and have perfect attendance. They weren't required to do any of the work. There was no minimal Mm -hmm. GPA. So we just had a certain amount of troublemakers that we had to wait. And in the meantime, yeah. And in the meantime, these kids who really want to learn are being, you know, it's just this, this circus. I mean, I had a kid in the first three weeks of my first year of teaching crawl out of my my teacher office window without me seeing <laughs> come back through this and and knock on my front door on the classroom door and and it, of course it made the whole classroom laugh at right. my expense i mean i think that was one of the days that i had to suddenly go to the teacher's restroom and cry my eyes out i mean right oh. yeah those moments are so mortifying when you're in them like i still have dreams like that when they happen in real life it's Oh, right. I mean, and I and I was too naive and, and in the ways of the world to know that really all I had to do was be a holding pen. I was like, I took my job seriously. I, I was going to get good, you know, these kids are going to learn and they're going to get, you know, I had the best possible intentions. And I had to figure out really quickly, too, I didn't have a whole lot going for me, you know. <laughs> so I figured out that my disciplinary strategy was to be crazy. Um and it worked. It worked like a charm. But I, it was just, again, I was literally pulling things. I was spitballing, pulling things out of my... Okay, so crazy, crazy, like what way crazy? Like okay. Some of the things you would do. So, for example, I mean, I'm not this big, intimidating person, and especially not at that time having almost died. Um, so I just start singing in Japanese. And, the, like, the kids would be like, Miss Kelly, she's crazy. <laughs> but, you know, they all wanted to be there for the show. And I would... I would put my my lifeblood out there just to keep their attention and get the, you know, like the, okay, here's a good example. I was, I was having to teach irony, the three types, right? Mm-hmm. This is for the test. <laughs> so, and Alanis Morissette comes out with, isn't it ironic at the time? Right. And there is literally not one single case of actual irony in it. I know, poor Alana. Oh! She knows this by now. <laughs> I know, I know. So I'm like, okay. Also, the O.J. Simpson trial was going on at the time. And um, some of my kids wanted to have a court hearing. I oh. know. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's not going to be incredibly dangerous. I mean, I just thought I was going to be fired at any second. You know, what the hell am I doing? Did and you do it? I think, 
I think I ended up, we ended up having a discussion about it, like circle up the wagons. I was, I was imitating my English teacher at that point, you know, and being kind of the moderator, but you know, already I had a reputation with other, with other teachers as, you know, what is going on in that classroom? There's always movement. There's always people up and well, I had learned pretty quickly that a lot of these kids were kinesthetic learners. And so, you know, we did a lot of our projects. We had block periods, 90 minutes of kids who had undiagnosed ADHD, who were kinesthetic learners, who, and yet they were there. Um, The principal that that first semester told me, okay, this is bizarre, because he was just like, I don't know what's going on in your classroom, but there are kids who will skip every other class period except for yours. We know this. It's documented. Wow. <laughs> that was like, so, so they're like, we don't know what you're doing. And honestly, I don't really want to know right now. And, and, but we don't know what to make of you. And I, and I was like, and I don't know what to make of me either. <laughs> so it wasn't until year two that I, I found my way. But So that's basically the the outcome of, of, you know, the first year Teach for America was I needed 15% of my school loans canceled and I had no money to go back home. And there was something that I was really learning from these kids about my own childhood and my own experiences. And, and for better or worse, you know, we're in that boat together <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, we're not going to sink. No way. We're not going to sink. Cause there's, that's not an option. It's not, it wasn't an option. Mm-hmm. What does Yoda say? Do or do not. There is no try. <laughs> there is no try. I know. Hmm. Okay, so we'll be back at it. <sighs> Year two. Year two. This is Amy Hallberg in partnership with Kiki Kelly. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tales from a Bucket List Champ. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast and please share it with friends. We'll be back next time with episode number six, Beyond Surviving. We hope you'll join us. Until then, what's one item on your bucket list? <laughs>